you see that one up there? Less than a year. Okay. That's for the, uh, the people that work on the whatever this is. Yeah. Again, I would have a lot of control. You're very gifted. Came up with that. The way it'll be structured is a construction loan, which will be like an interest only payment. Looks like trouble. I'm glad that door's locked. Keep let him in that way. If you want the real one.
somewhere back in the day. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, show me something. Yeah. Um, 
that would be the 27th, I believe. Uh, so details coming. SGBA Winter Blast. Wow, it seems like they just got back from camp. <laughs> but I know Laura's been scribbling things in her book, so uh, I know it's coming. SGBA Winter Blast, that's February 2 at, through 4. And see posters and, of course, see Laura for any information that you need. Tithing envelopes are here. Uh, again, sign-up sheet with instructions. And I'll just say that from a counter's point of view, if you can keep the same number, that'd be great. All right, what else? Anything? If not, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. Dan, can I ask you to open for us today? Lord, thank you for the, the privilege and honor of meeting um, together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, some people around the world do not have this privilege, Lord, or um, we just pray for everyone that's meeting this day. Christ, thank you for um, this season in particular that we can remember um, 
what he accomplished on the cross for us, Lord. And we just uh, pray that um, you would be glorified this day. In your name I pray. Amen. Remain standing. hymnals and turn to page 196 in the Red Trinity. 196.
sat down, Dr. Ed. 204 in the red. 204 in the red. A few pages over 204, and of course I shut my book completely. Do you have a reason? Uh, because I always raise my hand and the kids have three and too many kids. So this is okay. for the kids. All right, gotcha. <laughs> and he preempted them this morning. All right, 204 in the red. reading this morning is from Malachi chapter 2 and we'll be reading verse 17 through 3 5 Malachi 2 17 through 3 5 1489 in the pew Bible You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. 
your red hymnal once again and turn to number 200, 200 in, in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of Malachi, uh, chapter 3. The author says, See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. Now and in the next uh, couple, three weeks, I thought we might depart from our series and... uh, do a short series on the advent of Christ. And we're going to be using the book of Malachi, which might seem as a strange place to go, uh, but I hope that you will see the value in it. In coming to these scriptures, let's ask the Lord to bless us and to enable us. Holy Father, send your word to us this day with power and authority. And that can only be if your Holy Spirit will accompany the the text before us. Yes, we all have an English translation before us. We don't have to know Hebrew or Aramaic to study the scriptures. Thanks to those faithful men of the past who have done their work for us and have interpreted and written down the translations that we are able to read. But with that said, we also acknowledge that unless the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God as the sword that it is, His sword, if He will not cut us and discern within us bone and marrow and all of the things that need to be taught, then these words will pass right through us, unaffecting our lives. But we do not desire that. We desire to be challenged. We desire to be rebuked if necessary, to be brought up short, to be instructed, to be taught, so that we might learn the Word of God and that we might learn the subject of the Word of God, who is the Lord Christ. We pray these things for his glory and our good. Amen. For this series, the text I have chosen here in Malachi is significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament Bible, and that being the case, it is the last word of God for 400 years in the period between the two Testaments. Old Testament, then comes New Testament, But in between, you got four centuries 
of silence. By that I mean there was no active prophet during these four centuries giving new revelations from God. This intertestament period was one of the radical uh, social and political changes for the world of that day, including the Jews. Alexander the Great came to control Palestine in 332 B.C. And immediately he began a program called Hellenization, which means he wanted to convert the world to the Greek language and the Greek culture. When Alexander died 11 years later, his empire was divided among his four generals. Two of these generals established dynasties, Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucid in Syria and Mesopotamia. These two dynasties, Ptolemy in the south and Seleucid in the northeast, contended for control over Palestine, which, guess what, was in the middle between these two. At first, the Ptolemies controlled Palestine, and they were considerate of the Jewish faith. In 198 BC, however, the Seleucids gained control in a very different atmosphere was soon evident. In particular, a Seleucid monarch came to power named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest, so he took this title God made me the boss. <laughs> and he began to flex his muscles. He ruled from 175 to 164 BC. And Antiochus was what we might call a radical Hellenist. In other words, he pushed for the Greek culture in all subjects over all people, including the Jews. While the aristocracy had accepted much of Hellenistic culture, the common Jew on the street did not. I, I allude this to similar to the modernist movement in the Americas, beginning at the late uh, 19th century, in which the liberals of theology tried to force liberalism on the American culture and were, in some measure, successful uh, as they attacked uh, conservative evangelicals. But in the days of uh, Antiochus, his uh, atrocities were aimed at the destruction of the Jewish faith. For example, he prohibited certain elements of the Jewish faith he attempted to destroy all copies of the Torah. That would be the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch as we know them. He, he went on a burn. He wanted to burn these, these uh, scrolls from existence. He required offerings to be made to the Greek god Zeus. And he even erected a statue of Zeus in Jerusalem where in the Jewish temple he sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the temple altar. So you can see how antagonistic he was. He was in your, an in-your-face kind of reformer. One Jewish family in particular, led by an aging father, Matthias, 
opposed Antiochus and his reforms. He and his five sons, one of whom was Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt by destroying a Greek altar in their village and killing Antiochus' emissary. This began the 24-year-long Maccabean War, which resulted in Judah winning its independence until the Romans came in and overpowered in 63 B.C. When Pompey besieged Jerusalem for six months, and then he stormed the city, killing the priests while in their temple duties, and entered into the most holy place. This sacrilege was never forgiven nor never forgotten by the Jews. Herod the Great was appointed by Rome to be the tetrarch over Palestine, and under his administration the temple was rebuilt, known as Herod's Temple. He was the governing monarch at the time of the birth of Christ. So Malachi is important because of all of that history surrounding the Jewish people. A second reason why Malachi is important is because it closed the Old Testament record of Revelation and with no new revelation being given by God, the Jews were left to concentrate on their existent writings and move into other forms of literature other than the scriptures. It was during the intertestament period that the Septuagint, that's the Latin word for 70, and has to do with the 70 scholars that involved, were involved in this translation. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and it was accomplished under the sponsorship of Ptolemy for the Alexandrian Jews, Alexandria being in Egypt, Ptolemy being ruling as, as a tetrarch in Egypt. So during this period, we have, you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. You all know that. So what, what do you do if you're Greek? You can't read Hebrew. Well, that this translation known as the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This soon became the Bible for all those Hellenistic or Greek Jews who could no longer speak their native tongue. And it made the Bible accessible to the entire Greek-speaking world. Now who was behind that, do you think? That was the providence of God. I mean, if the world at large is going to go Greek, how wonderful to have the Bible in their own language. And that's what occurred. It's much the same, if you think about it, as our English translations have done in bringing the Bible to our world. This was also the Bible of the New Testament Christian church whose authors, though Jews, also wrote their writings in New Testament times in what? 
Greek. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all the way through the New Testament, all of those scriptures are written in the Greek language. Well, how wonderful that in terms of the emphasis of Alexander, the whole world of the day was speaking Greek. So the New Testament authors come along and they write the New Testament in Greek. And that means an easy dissemination of the word of God throughout the Hellenistic Empire. So I could say it this way, the Hellenization dream of Alexander the Great had been successful at least in bringing the Greek language to prominence. Now during this time, the Apocrypha, and that's the Greek word for hidden, the Apocrypha books were written as well. These books were added to the Old Testament canon of Scripture. And because they were included in the Septuagint translation, now that's the Greek translation again of the Old Testament, they became widely accepted by the Greek-speaking world until, until the time of the Reformation. The Protestants then decided to revert to the original Hebrew writings alone, which is our Old Testament. But the Roman Catholic Church accepted these Greek editions as being fully scripture. The Protestants rejected the Apocrypha for four reasons. Here they are. Firstly, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus or his disciples quote from them as being scripture. That's the first reason. That's a good reason. If you're going to consider something to be scripture, as the Old Testament would have been, Jesus did quote the Old Testament, his disciples did quote the Old Testament and referred to it, but no apocrypha books by these authorities. Secondly, much of what is written in the Apocrypha contradicts the books that we know as the Old Testament scriptures. So are you going to read a book that's supposed to be scripture, but then it contradicts other things that we know to be scripture? So the Protestants said, this cannot be scripture, because God is not contradictory in what he writes. So they would not accept them. They said they were not revelations from God. Thirdly, the Jewish community itself, which produced these Greek writings, said, we agree. <laughs> they're, not, they're not scripture. So if you have the Jews who wrote the Old Testament saying about these apocryphal books, they're not the scriptures. That had a lot of weight in terms of the Protestant Reformers. And finally, number four, they rejected the Apocrypha because anything of a theological truth, now listen to what I'm saying, anything of theological truth discussed in the Apocrypha is found elsewhere duplicated in the Bible books. So how do you need something that's going to just duplicate what's already in Genesis through Malachi? Now, with all that being said, we might raise the question, okay, then what is the value 
of the Apocrypha books if there's any value to them at all. Well, here's the value. They give us the history of the Jews in the period between the two testaments. If you want to know what happened to Israel as a nation in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, the Apocrypha books will tell you that. And you don't need those books to be inspired scripture to give a historical record of what happened to the Jews. As all histories that are uninspired, they have value in telling us what happened with the nations. Now the third major piece of literature produced in this 400 years <clears throat> was the Dead Sea Scrolls so penned because they were discovered in a cave overlooking the Dead Sea. Huh, pretty obvious. These scrolls contain some apocryphal writings. They contain writings on judgments. They contain pseudo-writings supported to be the works of ancient heroes of the faith and so forth. But most important was the find of many, literally one-third of the scriptures copied of the Psalms, Deuteronomy, and get this, a 24-foot long scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. You know they wrote in scrolls. They didn't write in little papers, uh, sheets, and so on like we have in our books. They rolled in scrolls, and then they, this 24-foot scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. These copies of the scripture were 1,000 years closer to the original Hebrew manuscripts than any other previous manuscripts found. And they demonstrated as well the careful way in which the Jews copied the scriptures and thus led to a general confidence in the integrity of our present day Bible. So the literature produced between Malachi and Matthew makes this period extremely important. God preserved his word and his history of his people during this time. So there's a great value in this period of writing. Malachi, of course, ends the Old Testament and begins this 400-year silence in God's revelation. But there's a third reason Malachi is important, and that is that it marks the beginning of the period of wide-scale diaspora, or the dispersion of the Jews. This began in the Babylonian captivity, and then the Persian captivity to follow, but it spread to all of the Greek world. What do we mean? Well, many of the Jews, when given opportunity, <laughs> did not go home to Palestine. They dispersed. That's the diaspora. They dispersed throughout the Greek world. And you will note that Paul, in his missionary journeys throughout the Roman world, always went to Jewish synagogues first, wherever he went. How could he do that? Well, because Jewish synagogues were everywhere he went. 
These synagogues were Jewish teaching centers established by the Greek-speaking diaspora throughout the Greco-Roman world. The synagogues were a product of this period. Because these Jews were far away from Jerusalem, they suspended the sacrifices and they replaced them with prayer and study of the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. By the way, synagogues, there are no sacrifices or animal atonements in the synagogues throughout the Greek world. That was reserved for the temple alone in Jerusalem. What these were, were teaching centers where the Jewish teachers could keep up their faith by teaching the people of the law. They devoted their lives to pious living, and thus they preserved their religion as best they could throughout the Greek world. It was at this time that all of the religious sects, S-E-C-T-S, were found in the New Testament, that we find in the New Testament, all of these sects emerged during this period of time. The Sadducees, or the aristocrats, who were the free thinkers, became controllers of the priesthood. They denied all religious writings, including the Old Testament, except for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They denied everything that was miraculous. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in eternal life. This was, the, I would call them, the modern uh, equivalent of our modern day scientists who just put their thinking caps on and rejected all of the scriptures and went completely with their own unaided and erroneous thinking. Also during this period, not only the Sadducees, but the Pharisees. This intertestament period, the Pharisees group. These were the synagogue teachers, and they became the guardians of the law, and they built elaborate walls around it to protect from disintegration in the lives of the people. They had no political clout like the Sadducees, but they had the ear of the people for their orthodox beliefs. The Pharisees were the only surviving sect after the destruction of the temple by Titus, Emperor Titus, in A.D. 70, and they are the spiritual progenitors of modern-day Judaism. So they, they were the fund, we would call them the fundamentalists. Oh, and by the way, if you're interested in their belief system, they believed in predestination and the very, very things that some of them, that we hold to. They believe not in chance, but that God controls the entire universe and so forth. Then the third group were called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -S -E -E -S. Now these are the three groups they all would develop during the Intertestament period. The Essenes was a small Jewish sect which grew out of the conflict of the Maccabean Wars. They considered mainline Judaism to be corrupt. They despised the liberal priests of Jerusalem. 
and they withdrew into private communities where they could live separated lives from the world in communes. And the Qumran people, which produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, was an Essene community. So all of those wonderful scriptures that were found in the Dead Sea cave were written and preserved by this little group called the Essenes. Now I recognize this is a lot of history, but it does show us how strategically important the book of Malachi is as the last book of God in the Old Testament era before the 400 years of silence, no prophets, and the dawn of the New Testament era. It heightens our appreciation, I think, for the prophecy of Malachi as he speaks of Israel's coming king. I think it would also be wise for us to note some of the present stress of Malachi's own time. It's believed that Malachi was written sometime between the period of Nehemiah's return to the Persian king after rebuilding the walls of the city and is coming back to review his reforms. The people were in a state of discouragement in a time of great sin. They believed that God did not love them anymore. Chapter 1, verse 2. And their dream of God coming to the temple with his glory and power had not been realized. Verse 1 of our text. Zerubbabel's temple, which was small, configuration of what the Solomon temple had been. Zerubbabel's temple sat there empty, alone, without the Shekinah glory of God's presence. It's like a shallow shell. And because the wicked seemed to prosper and rule over them, they doubted the justice of God. Chapter 2, verse 17, they were saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. Or again, where is the God of justice? You can see the discouragement. They're blaming God for the evil that's taking place and says he's in that. And there's no justice in the land and it's God's fault. I think this is like us when things don't seem to go right for us. It isn't long before we start blaming God for our troubles. And in the end, we accuse God of not loving us, not doing right by us. And we want to know why the wicked are prospering and why we, his people, are suffering. This has been repeated again and again in God's people throughout the centuries. And God's answer to us is the same he gave to his people through Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. 
You say, well, <laughs> wait a minute, what kind of answer is that? Well, the answer is this. God reaffirms his promise without stating his timetable. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come. Or again, the messenger of the covenant whom you seek, whom you desire, will come. So it's will come and will come. We see that twice he affirms the coming of his Messiah, his messenger, without telling when he is coming or how. In fact, the reader is specifically told that the coming of the king will be a surprise. Look at it. He will come suddenly. No warning. And the only assurance of these things happening, which is given the reader, is the, th is the authority of God himself in the words, says the Lord. Says the Lord. I have found that this doesn't always sit well with Christians. Science has ruined our ability to trust God on his word alone. We want answers. We want timetables. We want scenarios. We want procedures. We don't want God telling us, trust me. Faith is really something we struggle with all of our lives. Our experience tells us that God has not let his people down, that he has our good interests in mind, that he is able to bring his promises to pass, but we still want to know when his word will be fulfilled. Sometimes God's promises are based upon cause and effect, or reaping what one sows. Thus children are told to honor their father and mother and then they are given this promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6 verse 3. That's cause and effect. Obedience and honor will result in prosperity and a long life. So if we reap these things as obedient children, we can see the promise of God fulfilled. These are the kind of promises we like. Cause and effect. Give them to us, Lord. Tell us what you want us to do and then tell us what the outcome is going to be. But, brethren, there are other promises of God, like the promise to send his messenger, which are not cause and effect. That is to say, we just sit here reading these words as Israel of old did, and we are as helpless as they in that there was nothing they could do to be assured of this promise. God is the cause alone. He will bring about the effect. And he's simply saying, it's not going to happen the way you think. It's going to happen, but not the way you think. The messenger will come. As promised, he will come when you least expect him. So in the end, we are not comforted by this, but somewhat irritated. Irritated because we don't know enough. Or more to the point, we can't do enough 
on our own to assure us of the fulfillment. What I'm saying is we're left with the naked word of God and we must rest on his authority alone. Oh, no. Not that alone. Yes. To show how fickle we are in all of this, there are times when nothing will calm our heart but the word of God. I mean, think about that. When we are going through deep waters, our Christian friends will often try to comfort us and assure us using reason and logic. They will explain to us that although our relative has cancer, many cancer patients are surviving these days because of the advances in medicine and therapy. And they all tell us accounts of their friends and relatives who are alive and well after beating cancer. This is cause and effect, right? Mother Ellen had ovarian cancer, but she had surgery and radiation, and the effect was she lived 50 more years and died at age 97. All of that's fine as far as it goes. But sometimes, sometimes, we cannot rest and will not find any peace until we hear God say to us of the sick, the Lord will protect him and preserve his life. The Lord will sustain him on his sick bed and restore him from his bed of illness. Psalm 41, verse 2 and following. We may wonder about the how, the when, the wherefore, but it is God's word alone, his authoritative word, which comforts our heart and assures us in the end. In the case of Malachi's listeners, there's something else, and that is that the coming king promised to Israel as its deliverer will come in a manner or character that they have not anticipated. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 5. So I will come near to you for, for judgment. Judgment? Did I read that right? He's going to come... For judgment, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, the coming king is going to rule in a way that rights wrongs and corrects injustices which were going on blatantly among the people as they dealt treacherously with one another. Oh. See, they have accused God of injustice, chapter 2, verse 17. But there's nothing in their behavior which indicates that they have treated each other with justice or with mercy. There's no fear of God in their own hearts. Ooh, pretty sad. They want God to do something that they're not doing. 
Consequently, verses 2 through 4 come into play. Look at that in chapter 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? Good question to ask, right? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Lephites and revine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who can bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. Despite all of this talk about the people seeking the Lord, verse 1, and looking for him to enter the temple with his glory, God is saying to them, Are you sure you're ready for his coming? I know that you're complaining that God hasn't come, but are you sure you're ready for his coming? Maybe if you knew that his coming would mean judgment, you wouldn't be so quick to hasten the day and to charge God with injustice and lack of love. Now keep in mind that Malachi is talking here about the first advent of Christ. Who's the messenger of the covenant, verse 1, the new covenant that's coming. And the people were saying, where is he? When is he going to come? How much longer do we have to wait? Oh, maybe he isn't coming after all. Maybe that's just a idle promise. And God responds by saying, Perhaps you're not ready for his coming. And maybe you won't want him to come when you know what his coming will mean to you. Do you know that when he comes, he will be a refiner's fire that burns away the impurities of gold and silver, leaving the precious metal in the end? Do you know that he will be like a launderer's soap whose caustic lie will scour away every infectious bacteria of sin and leave the recipient sterile and pure. Oh, have you thought this through? You know, brethren, sometimes getting what we wish for results in getting more than what we wanted. This was Israel. In Malachi's day. And their complaint against God is answered by the authority of God's word alone. Now how is this applicable to us? Well, number one, the coming of Christ is always accomplished, excuse me, accompanied by needed spiritual reform. Get it down now. The coming of Christ is always accommodated by needed spiritual reforms. What Israel anticipated in the coming of the Lord was that the temple would be filled with the Shekinah glory of God's presence as Solomon's temple had been when Israel was an independent nation and ruled as a theocracy free and unfettered by foreign powers. So that's what they wanted to see. They wanted their freedom from Persian rule. 
Just like the Jews of Jesus' day looked for a Messiah who would break the yoke of Rome and set them free. History repeating itself. But the kind of freedom God had in mind, the kind of freedom he prophesied would become the ministry of his messenger or king was freedom from the tyranny of sin, the miserable way in which the people abused each other through adultery, sorcery, defrauding laborers of their wages, the oppression of the elderly, orphans, and strangers, verse 5 and following. Thus Jesus' teaching spoke of these issues. I tell you the truth, everyone whose sin who sins is a slave of sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you really want that in your Messiah? John 8, verse 34 and following. But it's just this kind of freedom which people are not in a hurry to acquire. I dare say that if I were a gambling man, I would wager that many of you even who are not Christians here this morning, are so because you love your sin too much that you don't want to relinquish it. Christ will change you by his Holy Spirit, but you're not eager to be changed. Nor was Israel of old. (laughs) They'd rather sit around blaming God for the trouble they were in instead of seeing that it was their own sin which had brought the heartache, the pain, and the suffering into their lives. But people don't bury their head in the sand like the proverbial ostrich forever. Someday you have to come up for air and take a look at the real world. And God's word mirrors back to us an accurate and truthful picture of what we really are without God in our life. Even Christians get to see the ugly side of their nature by looking into the Word of God. There's forgiveness, there's healing in no other way. And I have found that we Christians talk a good line about loving one another and serving one another and forgiving one another, but we're often no more noble and honorable in these virtues than the pagans of our world. Christianity, which doesn't reform your behavior, isn't a Christianity of faith and practice. Because Christ the King comes to reform. He comes as a refiner's fire. Secondly, just as Malachi's day, there were people looking for the coming of the King who themselves were not ready to meet him, so there were, there are, in the New Testament era, those looking looking in scorn for the return of Christ, who are not ready to meet him. Wow. Israel blamed God for the injustices going on in their land, and they were tired of hearing that God's messenger was coming, was coming. They doubted God's justice. They questioned his love. Peter had a confrontation of similar proportions with the skeptics of his own day who said, here it is, where is this uh, coming that he promised? 
Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Now in 2 Peter, in verse 2, Peter calls these people scoffers. And the coming to which these people referred was and is the second coming of the Lord. But as we have noted, the same skepticism prevailed as in our text with regard to Israel's first coming. First coming of Christ. So human heart hasn't changed much. And Peter's answer is almost identical to Malachi's. Peter says they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed. The earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 2 Peter 3, 5-7. So what he's saying is that far from the world remaining as it has been since the creation, hello, it has undergone judgment from God in the great flood. The status quo has not been maintained. God came. God interrupted man's sin. And what is more, Peter goes on to say, but that day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So you see the idea of suddenness again. Here's the element of surprise. Malachi 3 verse 1. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come. The coming of Christ is certain, but the element of surprise is uppermost. Peter's saying the same thing. Oh, and one more thing. Instead of seeing the delay of Christ's return as God not loving his people and not being concerned with justice, Peter puts this twist on it. Listen. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Here's what it is. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to, repent, to repentance. You need to get a different view on the delay, is what Peter is saying. Knowing that the coming of the king means that he comes as a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, Peter, in effect, is saying with Malachi, you're not ready to meet him yet. You're not. You need to repent of your sin. God's delay is mercy to you. It is loving you by giving you opportunity to come to repentance and faith. That's not bad. That's good. Peter knew, and we should too, that as Christ, the King's second coming, there will be tremendous Earth-shaking reforms. Heaven disappearing. Elements being destroyed by fire. The earth laid bare. But most importantly, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. 
whatever conceptions people have about heaven, it is what? A home of righteousness. Revelation 21, 27 says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ to stand on, guess what? You're not ready for his coming. You're not. And that being the case, it is mercy, it is the love of Christ that Christ's return is delayed. Delayed. In Peter's words, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience, I'm reading scripture, our Lord's patience means salvation. God's delay means salvation for many. If you're unsaved here this morning, instead of scoffing at the promises of Christ's coming, saying, where is he, where is he, where is he? You need to be thankful for his delay because you will not withstand his coming. Opportunity to repent is only now. It's today. While God's spirit convicts you of sin. Don't say you want to wait a while. Don't say, oh, I want to think about it. The king comes at a time when you will know not. And delay on your part is deadly. It's deadly. It's still going to be sudden when he comes. You won't know it till it hits. Then thirdly and lastly, the king can never be present without him accomplishing the promised reforms of God. Malachi said that after God's messenger had performed his work as a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. Then, verse 3, instead of the corrupt priests who now served among the Levites, chapter 2, verse 1 and following, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, verse 4, instead of the blind, the crippled, and the diseased animals the people were presently bringing, chapter 1, verse 8 and following. Can you imagine that? This is the kind of stuff they were bringing to offer to God. Oh, that, that lamb is sick. We'll, 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 we'll take that. And we'll offer that one to God. That one over there is blind. That one's crippled. That, 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 we don't want them anyway, so we'll, we'll give them to God. Christ said his first coming was a reformer, upsetting the status quo, confronting men in their sin, pointing people to God, chiding them for their lack of faith. And Christ said his second coming is also a reformer, only then ushering in all the reforms promised through the merit of his sanctifying blood. Thus Peter tells us, So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, 
and at peace with him. Do you know that when he comes, he's coming as a reformer? He'll find you out. This is the application for believers here today. Knowing that Christ is a refiner's fire who will put to test the metal of our fidelity to him, we had best be sure that we are living in such a way that there is gold and silver under the dross, not just iron ore, which isn't worth anything. Will Christ find in you? Will Christ find in me? Genuineness of faith, genuine love for him. Doing as he commands is the test with no excuses, no apologies, no equivocations. And wonder of wonders by his Holy Spirit, he enables us as his people to keep his commands. May Christ himself equip us to meet him in sincerity and peace. Our Father, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. If you come as a refiner's fire, if you come as that launderer's soap, that, that kind of lye soap that really scrubs down and makes the skin red but gets rid of all the germs and bacteria and everything, those reforms the church needs, our hearts need. We dare not sit and point the finger at God and say, yeah, but God, you know, you're blessing the, the, uh, the evil people. You're not blessing us. You're responsible for the trouble that we're in. If we do that, we have missed the mark completely about our own sin and what lack of reform does to our peace and tranquility and our faithfulness to you. We know you're coming, even though you do not state the day nor the hour. We're like Malachi's people. You have to listen. He was talking about Christ's first coming. Our scriptures talk about Christ's second coming, but both comings required a wait period. No timeline was given. Nothing was spelled out in such detail as to remove faith. No, by faith, we had to keep in step with the Spirit of God living for Jesus before he comes. And I pray that we'll see that. And Lord, where we have been failing you, bless and honor the truth of your word. Bring reform, the reform that is grossly needed in our day. Help the church in America to be faithful to you. Back to your word, back to your promises, but then faithful in service. Bless and honor Jesus in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. From the Red Hymnal, our closing hymn is 229. 229 in Trinity. Let's stand as we sing.
One of the things that happens during the Christmas season, at least in our country, is the misunderstanding of the world with regard to Christ. Oh, the little baby in the manger. Oh, we worship the little baby in the manger. The last verse we sung says, not a little baby in the manger anymore. He's the Son of God, King of glory. You need to be ready to meet Him. Because Babyland is no longer the King and His glory is coming. Ruling now as He does, coming in His glory in the future. Tonight we'll be studying in John's Gospel downstairs. What are we studying? We're studying the true Lord's Prayer, John 17. Not the disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. no, no, no. We're studying the true Lord's Prayer, the prayer he prayed just hours before his crucifixion, and it is marvelous. It's like God is allowing us to step into the holy sanctuary and listen. To Jesus pray. That's absolutely humbling. See you at six, choir at five. Thank you. Thank you. 